Thank you for tuning in to KCADV's podcast series. My name is Diane Fleet, and I'm really happy to have Ivy Brashear and Catherine Engel with me today, Dr. Catherine Engel. In today's topic, we're going to be talking about providing history and context of the Appalachian region. So Ivy Brashear is a student um, at University of Kentucky in Communication, and Dr. Engel is the director of the Appalachian Center at the University of Kentucky. So thank you so much for being with us today. We've been planning this for a while, and so I'm really glad to see you this afternoon. Thanks for having us. You're yeah, very, thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. I thought it might be helpful a little bit, and I think it was one of your all suggestions, actually, while we were sort of waiting to get things started. Can you tell us a little introduction of the work that you're currently doing? And I don't know, Catherine, if you want to start and let us know what's going on in your world and what your focus is. Sure, yeah. So as you mentioned, I'm the director of the Appalachian Center at UK, and I'm a sociologist. So I got my PhD in sociology at UK. And so I do a variety of projects within the Appalachian region. I work a lot in Knox County, Kentucky, and chair the board of an organization there called the Lind A. Hand Center, and which is a, a small nonprofit that provides different community service in the area. Also been doing some projects in Corbin around racial justice. Um, been doing some work around water, water testing being definitely an issue, <laughs> public infrastructure issue in the Appalachian region. Uh, and I get to work with a lot of great students at UK and, and teach and mentor who are doing really good projects in the region. So. Thank you for saying that. And I don't know that we'll circle back to it, but the water, I've really been following that in Martin County, as yeah. I'm sure lots of folks have been, you know, who'll be listening in might be familiar with it. So thank you for your work and and something that has been long overlooked and scary and dangerous for our families. And so thank you for that. Catherine, what's going on with you? Oh, Ivy. I just did Catherine. Ivy. That's okay. I am currently a PhD student in communication, as you said, but previous to that, for about the last 10 years, I worked at the Mountain Association in Berea, and this is a nonprofit organization that does a lot of work in eastern Kentucky around economic development and just transition. They do a lot of energy work, energy efficiency, and new energy work. My work there was primarily about narrative change and policy. I'm from the region. I'm from Perry County, community called Viper. It's about about two and a half hours from Lexington, where I currently live, but have lived there. Uh, my family's lived there for a very long time, so I have very deep roots in this place in Eastern Kentucky. Thank you so much for joining us as well. So we had met, I think, through Zoom, actually. It's been, it seems like forever ago. It's probably been a couple of months, actually, now. And and we were sort of figuring, we knew that it was important to bring this conversation to the podcast series. And I think, Catherine, as you just said a second ago, I think it's really important for us to know that 50-plus counties in Kentucky are considered Appalachian. And our member programs, which serve all of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, are serving this community. And we wanted to up lift those voices, and at the same time, making sure that our direct service staff have a contextual idea of the historical perspective of the region, so that as programs are being developed and there's inroads and outreach to the community, that they take that history with them. At the same time, kind of understanding probably the historical experiences that a lot of folks that are accessing um, our member programs for domestic violence services bring with them. And so when we met on Zoom, we were a little bit all over the place. And I apologize. I probably was one of the key ones. It was a little bit all over the place. And then I stumbled into this article, Ivy, that you had in Yes Magazine. And I thought this just sort of placed it really well as, for, as sort of a beginning um, launching place for a conversation. And then perhaps, you know, down the road, we can do other more, more sort of laser focused conversations. So excuse me for 
we're just sort of reading this, but I'm going to kind of read this and then I'm going to hopefully kind of give you all some time just to sort of talk about this amongst yourselves and, and we can have the pleasure of sort of listen, listening into this conversation. So Ivy and Yes Magazine, it said, the time has come then to tell a new story of this place, to reclaim the truth and the complexity of being of and from Appalachia. We must talk about the struggle and the tragedy, but we must tell the truth of those struggles and why they exist in the first place. That understanding is critical because without a deeper and more complete understanding of Appalachia, it will be hard for its people to build a brighter future that crosses lines of division and works towards parity between race and class. So kind of kind of leave it at that place. But I think not only is it critical for the people of Appalachia, but I think it's critical for programs as they're beginning to work with represent, engage with, how can we do that if we really aren't even understanding the complexity of the history? And so just for a brief moment, I don't know really who wants to start, maybe I'll lean to you, Ivy, since it was your article, if you can talk about why just even knowing someone's history is important as a first step. Well, I think that a lot of times, especially in Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia, the history is sort of obscured by this leaning toward a more nostalgic kind of understanding of the place as like hardworking individuals who are hard scrabble and resilient and all of these kinds of words that we hear sometimes about people who live there and grew up there and all of that stuff, which I'm sure that is a true part of the story. But if you dig a little deeper, you start to see that there is complexity there. There are layers, you know, for 150 plus close to 200 years, there's been one economic structure that has really exploited the land and the people and the labor has extracted a lot of wealth from this place so that the people who are still there can't really build anything, <laughs> you know, outside of that structure, outside of the economic structure. And that's a long history. That's a deep history. If we go back even further to um, before white people had come into this place, there was a whole other history, a whole other long history of people existing in this region that oftentimes is completely erased and completely ignored from this narrative of this place. So understanding this history, this deep history of any place, is very crucial and very important to sort of knowing how we got to where we are. We have to understand that in order to begin to deconstruct it and then to sort of say, okay, what pieces do we want to take from that into the future? What new things do we need to bring in? How can we um, see this full picture in a way that helps us move forward instead of sort of being stuck in these narratives and these stories that really obscure what is true and what has happened in this place? It's more complex than this like one story that we often hear. Catherine, I don't know if you have anything that you want to kind of add to that. You know, there were so many things that you sort of said, you know, as far as obscuring and I, and I hope that we, and, and sort of being able to recognize and dig deep as to what we want to bring forward and what we want to elevate and, and, and celebrate, but at the same time, recognize the wounds and the hurt that has occurred and that people still carry those with them genera- generationally, I would imagine. Yeah, definitely. So Catherine, I don't know if you have anything you'd like to add yeah, to that and, piece. And I would add, you know, in thinking about place, what we can learn about those past injustices of those places and those place-based injustices, I think is also what Ivy's talking about, kind of about the coal industry and oil and gas and and how, um, you know, Appalachia, the coal fields of eastern Kentucky in many ways powered this country, you know, for a long time and provided jobs and employment and communities kind of just springing up from that industry 
right? And and the but thinking more complexly about the injustices there and the sacrifices that were made for in order for that to happen. You know, my papa was a coal miner, like many people's stories, right? You know, and he had black lung, and he went to work in the mines at like 16 years old. And so, what does that mean in terms of generational wealth transfer? What does that mean in terms of generational traumas that come from um, you know extractive industries as well? And that might play out in any number of social issues that you see um, in the Appalachian region today. So I think how we, and you know, we mentioned water earlier, how we rectify those injustices that have, continue to have real daily impacts on people's lives that are based in this history of exploitation, but also of resilience and resistance in that. You know, I don't always want to. I, I, I sometimes can be one of those people that when people share things with me, I can go, oh, this is like a domestic violence situation. Oh, this is whatever. But it must be really difficult when to, to use the coal industry as an example of something that really has taken a lot of the wealth out of the region, has exploited, has left people's health, whether through water or black lung, but at the same time has kind of generated the economy. It's something that the community to a degree celebrates, I imagine, because it was, you know, it was some paying jobs and you want to find pride in the work you did, even though maybe you didn't have other choices, but you want to have pride in in your life and in your legacy. And that juxtaposition, I would think would be really difficult. And I, and again, I don't mean to minimize this whole thing in, in a person's experience, but it, Every time when I listened to it or when I was reading this prior, I kept thinking about a person who sometimes financially is dependent on the individual that is also abusing them. And you don't want to be in a place where you're living your situation in a lie. So you hold up some positivisms in that because you want your kid's father to be an okay person and you want your standing in the community to be okay. But at the same time, this individual is causing a great deal of harm. And I just couldn't help seeing the symbolism or the the reflection in that. And I think this last series of podcasts that we've had has been a little bit untraditional domestic violence folks. So we had the individual who's head of the state suicide prevention and the person who's head of the fairness and the person who's been working with a lot of immigration refugee. And now to have you all with the Appalachian community. And I keep seeing this very, I don't know, this pattern of exploitation and how it plays out, whether it's with Again, GLBTQ plus community, whether it is, you know, with people of color in the black community, whether it's people of low income and poverty or marginalization and women. And it's it's frightening the intention that those systems sort of play out. And and again, I was just I'm sort of mesmerized that I'm seeing this sort of play out here. So thank you so much for that. I will say, I told you all I would ramble and I'm trying not to ramble. I'm going to move on to the next part unless you all had something else you wanted well, to say. Yeah, I could maybe pick up on that in thinking about place because I think what we're talking about here is place and Appalachia being a, a specific place, you know, related to the mountains, related to certain histories. It's, it's important to think about the fact that all those communities also exist in Appalachia, that there are refugee communities, that there are women, that there are queer folks, that there are immigrants in Appalachia. And so a lot of the work, the great work that Ivy's been doing over the past 10 plus years is rethinking that narrative of Appalachia being a monolith, you know, that there's one type of Appalachian person, they're white, they're 
straight, they're this, this and that, you know, they're a coal miner. So thinking about the different identities and kind of that intersectional lens of thinking about place and region and how we have all these different types of people. We have all these overlapping systems of oppression, whether that's racism or sexism or, or, or class and how that kind of creates the Appalachia that we see today and have to kind of pay attention to all those different elements and all those different populations within this place. Yeah. And I'll say too, that it's by design that they have created this system and this structure where people are dependent upon it, you know, or they sort of buy into this narrative that, well, all we have is coal. And if coal goes away, we have nothing. I heard that a lot when I was doing my master's research, when I was getting my master's, did a lot of focus groups in Hazard. And a lot of people were saying that, you know, if we don't have coal, what do we have? That's a narrative that has been constructed by this system of oppression, by the coal industry, by the people who support the coal industry, sort of make people believe that that's the only option. And that happens on many different layers in this intersectional way to sort of keep people dependent upon this system of oppression that Catherine is talking about. And I think, I'm so glad you said that, because I I think we can all kind of dip down into that kind of monolithic or homogenous sort of experience. And and I know myself, I've been guilty of it. I know in several conversations with you all, I've been guilty of it. At the same time, I get really angry when someone talks about the one experience of a domestic violence victim, right? And so it's like, oh, abuse can occur in lots of different ways. You know, we have a whole cycle and wheel of, you know, kind of wheel of violence in different ways that people can exert that control dependent on who that individual individual is and who that offender is. And so we do that sometimes, that simplification, I think, just to kind of wrap the situation up in a bow and go, well, here it is. Like, here's this, here's this, and we we lose the complexity of it. So thank you so much for saying that. The next part I wanted to shift to, again, leaning towards this amazing article in Yes Magazine. So I hope folks can kind of Google it if they're so inclined. But it then sort of talks about the significant history events that influenced the region. So we talked a second ago about why the importance of knowing the history. And here are some of the pieces that came out in the article. It says, after the Civil War, the area began to undergo a tremendous change. As it became more industrialized, the growing nation needed raw materials found in Appalachia, timber, iron, and especially coal. The economy shifted from one based on agriculture to one based on the extraction of natural resources. Few in Appalachia benefited from this economic shift, which disrupted the local culture and kinship structure. Many people were forced off their land and moved into mining and other camps. And during this period, the stereotype of those from Appalachia was created, seeing them as ignorant, backwards, and violent, allowing and justifying the exploitation. This is a tragic period in the history of Appalachia, which in many ways has continued to the present. I found that so powerful of the... I, I, I'm an optimist at heart, and I hope that people, given the right opportunity, do things out of kindness and with care. It always strikes me, and I should know, because I've looked at different movements, and, and to see the intention of how vilifying folks makes it easier to take advantage and exploit. So I'm hoping you all can chat about that. Yeah, I mean, I can start and can add what you want, Catherine. Yeah, I mean, it really has been a long history of constructing this narrative of Appalachia, of Eastern Kentucky, the people who live there. It goes back as far as, excuse me, land prospectors hired by George Washington coming in to sort of see what was available to take out of the place. But over time, I think 
people sort of turn the lens back onto Eastern Kentucky as a way to sort of justify or explain other kinds of national turmoil that are happening. And certainly it was done as a way to make the people seem not not as worthy or people who were easy to sort of take things from because they didn't really, they couldn't do for themselves. And so here was this industry coming in, the coal industry to sort of do for them. It was painted this way so that people would sort of look the other way about this exploitation that was happening. It wouldn't bother them so much if they felt like the people weren't worthy of saving, essentially. But also it's sort of done as this way, you know, we saw this most recently with the 2016 presidential election, where the region was sort of labeled as Trump country, even though that wasn't exactly true. We weren't the region that got Trump elected as president, not alone anyway. But, you know, it's a it's an easy sort of target for these explanations for like what is happening politically, economically, culturally in the country. Oh, well, there's this region of really quote-unquote, backward white people, poor white people who are doing this, who are like our problem as a nation that we sort of have to solve in some way or we have to like write off and not really care about. And that sort of narrative, which is really ingrained in the national sort of lexicon, really makes it easy for these kinds of exploitations to happen time and time again and for these kinds of narratives to keep being perpetuated time and time again. It just makes it easier for other people to sort of accept it. And it's not just Eastern Kentucky and Appalachia where this happens. I mean, this happens to Native communities in Alaska. It happens to Black folk in the Deep South. Like, it happens to um, Native communities in the West, you know, where all of this extraction happens, where they're drilling for oil and they're uh, mining for coal and just trying to exploit that land for profit any way that they can sort of vilify the people who are already living there makes it easier for other people to accept that this is happening, that these atrocities are happening, that these generational traumas are happening. just makes it easier. So that's why these narratives sort of work hand in hand with this exploitation, this resource extraction. Yeah, and I wanted to point to plug something here. Um, Appalachian Reckoning is a really great volume that Ivy's featured in that kind of deals with a lot of these issues in terms of the role of Appalachia in the the national imaginary in recent years, especially coming out of coming out of the election. But but you know, stereotypes are are powerful and persistent. And so I, I teach Appalachian studies classes, you know, and this is one of our kind of early lessons is about stereotypes and prejudice and discrimination and then up to structural discrimination. And and you can kind of kind of follow the line up through there. And and it has been different groups who have constructed this idea of Appalachia. You know, missionaries were also and and folks with trying to start schools, settlement schools and kind of educational institutions were also kind of uh, during this time, influential in constructing this idea of Appalachia as a place that needs saved, as a place that needs uplifted, as a place that needs educated. And, you know, we're talking Civil War era here. Um, and we're, you know, you still have those connotations today, right? With missionary groups continuing to, to have Appalachia as a service region and, and continued educational disparities in the region compared to other places and, and persistent poverty, which in many ways intersects with all these issues, especially when you're talking about things like intimate partner violence. So yeah, it's important to kind of see, trace the development of these ideas. And in Appalachian studies, we, you know, one of the other early lessons is, you know, what is Appalachia, right? And so we talk about Appalachia as a social construct. 
it's this made-up thing that was created through discourse, through people talking about this area, through social scientists like myself even saying this is what Appalachia is, literally drawing lines on the map. Here's what's Appalachia, here's the next county over is not, you know. And so it's important to think about it being this idea, right, that kind of has functions and is kind of pulled out when it's convenient in many ways, especially if you're thinking about political, uh, the political realm and certain politicians who might invoke that towards certain aims, or even academics who invoke that towards certain aims. But yeah, that's one of the the kind of early lessons in Appalachian studies is thinking about what is Appalachia, who gets to say what Appalachia is, how is that constructed over time, how is that narrative, and how has that definition changed over time, and, and then thinking about what people in this area, how they define it, you know, versus how outsiders define it. So there's a lot of talk in Appalachian studies about kind of this insider-outsider thing and who gets to define what is Appalachia? So yeah, it's complex, as Ivy's indicated. <laughs> it is complex, and it, and one of the things I don't know, I don't know. That was an interesting thing about what is the definition, what determines whether something is. But I do think it's often tied within people's minds related to poverty, and so the definition in itself is often kind of brought about as less than, right? You know, and I was really glad you brought that up because I was going to ask that question of when you were bringing up the mission work. And so I, one of the things that I really noticed is I can't quite always find out when talking about Appalachia who the bad guys are. You know, it's like the people that are coming in to do really good work, but you're kind of exploiting again the stereotype of it. So I appreciate that you're trying to do work. And that's one thing that I hope we end a little bit with KCADV. How do we do genuinely good work and not continue the stereotype of the exploitation of the of the region and the people? So I imagine really good folks with hopefully maybe good intention have bought in to the stereotype and are doing these things and people that have actually um, exploited the region very intentionally and created a narrative to make it easier to to marginalize and abuse and and hopefully have people maybe just not even care so much. You know, of course we had to come in and do this because, you know, that's just what we had to do. So are you, is is that, you're kind of getting it on all fronts actually. I don't know if I have a question in there. It's just my statement. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I I think, I well, first also, I appreciate you bringing us onto this and talking about Appalachia in the context of this kind of service provision that y'all do and the really good work that your partners do in terms of, you know, ending, ending violence. Because Appalachia, that's another, you know, stereotype is violence, right? Yes. If you, if you have, you know, I have my students write down all the words that come to mind when you say Appalachia. Violence is often on there, right? Because you have feuding, this, these ideas of feudings and shootouts. And if you think of the hillbilly stereotype, he's got a shotgun there, right? Right. And so how we can reframe that narrative and and work towards anti-violence in our communities within that context of being known as a violent place is is important. And I, you know, I struggle with this also. I work I work in the Stinking Creek community of Knox County, um, where, you know, there is violence. And how do we like any other community, right? Um, and how do we change those narratives, change those expectations, and provide services for people and get at the root of those problems that, that lead to things like domestic violence and other forms of violence? Thinking about traumas. 
thinking about structural violence, which is really what we're talking about in, in terms of how our structures are set up to enact violence on people and to oppress people, how the, the public services are not there like they should be, how the, our educational systems often fail people, um, how our communities, the fabrics of our communities have changed over time. So yeah, I don't know. There's a lot there. There is a lot there, but I, but I, not to go back to just mission work, but just to use that as an example, if the goal really is to kind of come in and support, help, really probably the best thing is to understand and listen, right? Like that's probably the better way as opposed to, I'm going to come in here and solve the problems because I kind of know what's going on here. And, and again, I don't mean to tie it into a symbolism again of domestic violence victims, but we so many times get focused on the victim behavior. Well, we really need to not focus on the victim behavior, certainly help you know, if we've got things going on, but let's really look at the underlying structures of what the offender's doing or what the exploitation or what this continual long-term um, legacy of people have, have done and created, you know, and, and what is fiction and what's true, you know, which is a whole nother, whole nother piece. I don't know if you have something, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Just to agree with you that, I mean, I think that's a lot of the work is listening and learning. And a lot of our work at Mountain Association, when someone would come to the region and they would want to, you know, give us a bunch of money for something, you know, like found, uh, funders or something like that, or um, journalists who wanted to come in and cover a story, a lot of our work was sort of backing up and providing the context and the history and letting these people, providing spaces for them to actually hear from the community and hear from people who had lived these experiences so they could get a better sense of what we're talking about here today in this in this podcast. Just that context and that history and that long systems oppression that has been happening in this place. The listening part, the learning part, it's vital. It's critical to any work that is happening in this place, to any place, any place that has people in it. You have to go in and you, if you want to help in that place, listen, learn about what is happening there, learn about those structures and those systems. Actually listen. Don't just come in with these sort of preconceived ideas about what you're going to do and how you're going to help. Be the hero to save the day. Exactly. Yeah. If you don't even have the respect to listen to, to really what, what folks are needing. And this probably reiterates it a little bit, but I, I found this part fascinating too. And so Ivy, you had mentioned uh, a woman, Meredith McCarroll, and she had said she had asked us to dig a little deeper and ask why these images are the ones that are being taken out of the hills in the first place, which is part of the conversation we've been having. Like, who does this benefit? Who does this narrative benefit? But she references a term and she suggests that we adopt the term unwhite to describe Appalachian people. Since they are portrayed by Hollywood as neither of the dominant white culture nor of the minority cultures of people of color, they are an in-between. They are always othered on purpose. And I found that, you know, I, I found that amazingly powerful. And I think, again, it was sort of like, this is coming from all fronts. It's that same thing that when we were talking about people coming in to help, it's like the folks that sort of act like they're helping are doing harm and the people that are intentionally doing harm. And here we've got a, you know, a, a community that, that are not allowed to belong. You know, they're not, res and again, I don't mean to be homogenous, but but not, not respected to belong, othered by white people. And I, I don't know. I, I just found that amazing. I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that, but it, it hurt me. To, <laughs> that hurt me to read that. Yeah, I mean, Meredith is great. She was an editor of Appalachian Reckoning that Catherine mentioned. Um, an Appalachian scholar has worked many years 
in this area of study. I don't know, while you were talking, I sort of, I thought about another scholar who wrote a book recently, Jesse Wilkerson. It's called To Live Here, You Have to Fight. And it's a history of women being a part of social movements in Appalachia and Eastern Kentucky. And I just think that like, it's intersectional, as Catherine has said, that there's so many layers to what is happening in Eastern Kentucky, what is happening in Appalachia, the oppression that exists but and the exploitation that exists, but also how the people are sort of coming together to help each other and hold each other up. I think that we in Eastern Kentucky have often been sort of left to our own devices, right? Unless it's a moment where people can turn that lens on us and use that narrative for their own purposes, oftentimes political purposes. We sort of have to exist in this place together. We have to help each other. Sometimes there's a lot of tension in that, and we don't exactly help each other in the way that maybe we need to. But we are a community of people that has just sort of had to figure it out because we don't get a lot of help from outside people. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sort of like rambling, but I think that, yeah, we are often othered as this community of people that sort of exists outside of the dominant culture that has to sort of stick together to make it work. But I also think it sort of gets back to that history of who we are and where we've come from and the fact that there are refugee communities living in Appalachia, in eastern Kentucky. There are people of color living there. There are um, people of color and refugees who live in poverty in this place. And so it's just this stepping back to think about who is being served by those narratives who is telling those stories, why are they telling those stories, and examining that before you just take it at face value. We oftentimes, like, the story is sort of taken and used for many different purposes. So it's oftentimes about why is it being used for that, reading between those lines. I don't know if that answers any of your questions. Well, it, it does, and, and also brought up 20 zillion other questions, sure. right? Which I which I think is really kind of fascinating. And, and, and you had said something, I think it was you, Ivy, that you said something about the 2016 election of Trump really sort of brought out again this sort of, this is how everybody voted. And again, the homogenous piece or the monolith piece, but also I, I will say on a, on a more liberal left, again, kind of othered a whole community of folks. And and that's where I kind of noticed a whole, a, a lot of attention on the Appalachian community and folks that I have a tendency to work with in the, you know, domestic violence, violence against women arena. One, probably sad to say there hasn't been a whole lot of attention on the Appalachian community, except for certainly our member programs that are there, but there hadn't been a lot. But what attention was there was kind of a shaking of head and what do we do and what are they thinking? And and oh my goodness, you know, trying to help and voting against themselves and, you know, all this stuff. And, and that's where... Again, I think when we were figuring out this next podcast series is I think we're asking the wrong questions. I think we're looking at the wrong things. And as a as I hope folks outside of Kentucky are listening to this, but at the same time for our coalition, we need to do better and have need to have a better set of questions and understanding of the community. If we're truly, the goal of the coalition is so that no person is more than about an hour away from shelter service program. But if we're not even understanding the community that we're an hour away from, then we're not doing good work, you know? And and again, I do, I do think there's some programs that are in Eastern Kentucky, they're doing fabulous things, but on a statewide level, what are we doing? So. And, and, what are those structural barriers? You mentioned like an hour away. What 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 systems are in place that make that 
so difficult you know what kind of transportation barriers what going back to you know public infrastructure and the way we've set up our communities and what we value in our communities and where our dollars go how can we break down those barriers and getting those services to people in in rural communities this is also you know Appalachia another word that comes up in that list of Appalachia is rural Right. But if you look at the Appalachian region as a whole, you know, you have Knoxville, Tennessee, you have Charleston, West Virginia, you have Pennsylvania cities in Pennsylvania. So there there are definitely rural areas, but there's also there are cities. There's, you know, London, there's Hazard. And and it is important. And I think we talked about this before. Your your experience within a certain county in eastern Kentucky can be very different if you live in the county seat or, or out outside of the county seat, right, in terms of accessing those resources, in terms of how people view you even within the the county, right? There's the city people and the county people. And so for service providers out there, you know, what, what the the implications of those contexts at a pretty micro level can, can be important in, in, you know, dealing with these kinds of situations. I think it's great that you said that. And I know we're sort of getting to a degree to the end of the podcast, and I think that that sort of situates us, right? So, so as we'll just use KCADV, but but whoever's listening in to whatever they're doing, it is true. I love that you just said that. Like, like if we're really proud of the fact that no person is an hour away from services, but we're taking away complete understanding that somebody in Lexington or Louisville has much greater access than somebody who, you know, I, I don't know, is in Estill County, which is in our region. And so that's great if we can say we have these general services, but are we tailoring it to the needs of the community, as well as not presuming, you know, that everybody has the same experience in Eastern Kentucky versus Central Kentucky versus Western Kentucky. But, but how are we making, how are we making things available, knowing the complexity of the folks that are living here in the Commonwealth? And I don't, I don't know, this might be a really good time, Catherine, for you to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing, whether it's with Lend a Hand or things that you're seeing that seem to be having some really positive um, work that might, there might be some ways to emulate that or learn from or to continue our conversation for listeners on, on things that are, that are working well. Yeah, well, we can go go back to that idea of, of mission work and missionaries. Actually, the, the organization that I worked for was started by these two women, um, Peggy Kimner and Irma Gall, back in 1958. So are you saying all missionaries are not bad, too? So I need to not presume <laughs> no, all mission I, work? <laughs> no, I never said they were all You bad. did not. There, there, no. are, there are implications that might you not be, um, yeah, when you first think through things. Um, things don't always go as planned, but, but this organization was started to lend a hand on Stinking Creek in Knox County. And so Peggy was a frontier nursing service trained nurse midwife. Um, and Irma was a school teacher and farmer and rode a horse to, to teach in the one-room school in the 1950s and 60s. And I learned a lot, especially from Irma, because they were very much outsiders coming into the area, um, Peggy from Pennsylvania and Irma from Indiana. And so I think they did a lot of listening to to people and also being open about that what they were doing their intentions and provide and helping helping folks you know not telling them this is what you have to do or this is how you need to do it but it's like oh okay your your cow is having trouble in labor I'll come help you deliver that cow or whatever so just being being there and available and accessible to people and to 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 earn that trust I, I guess a lot of people presume they deserve trust from people, especially people in Appalachia or people in any marginalized community, really. You you assume that you should be trusted because you're an authority or you have this job title or whatever. But but in what I've learned about the history of the Lindahan Center and the work that's been done is you, you really have to earn that 
trust. And so, so the organization for many years, for decades, had a clinic, 4-H programs, Sunday school programs, home health program, really before home health was a thing, took people to doctor's appointments in Lexington, medical transportation. So, so all sorts of different kind of community service provision, filling a need, especially in a time before a lot of those government services came in in the 1960s, you know, in the war on poverty. Um, and a lot of things have changed in the history of this, you know, 60 years on the or- it, that the organization has had. So, so seeing those needs and being able to step up in, in fulfilling those needs while, while listening to folks in that is what I've, I've kind of learned in, in working with and learning about the history of the center. It's one of the things, um, I don't mean to say we're experts on it and we succeed all the time, but it's one of the things that I, I like about our program at Greenhouse 17. And it's a real push of people shouldn't bend to the program. The program should bend to what folks need. And that can look very individual. So one of the difficulties, I think, just speaking of shelter, that can be hard for sometimes families is sometimes things can look a little, I don't, I don't want to say unfair, but I'll say unfair. But it's because, you know, what Ivy might need is different than what Catherine might need, which is different than what I might need. So what is it, what services, what support, what kind of wraparounds, and to be available to kind of fill those needs. So it sounds a lot like Linda Hand was that. So you've got a cow that's having trouble. That's what we're going to do, right? I'm not going to go, these are the things we serve. And if it's not what you need too bad, that's not what we do. It, it, People's lives are complex and they have lots of issues. And, and Olivia, who works here at KCADV, she'll times, sometimes kind of give things about as we're making decisions on what to do with our direct service dollars. And somebody might go, I need a washer, like a washing machine. And we might go, that's not really a priority because me and my mind, I don't think that that's a priority. Like you might need rent and housing and stuff. But if you look and go, a washing machine would keep her from hopping on a bus with three children and losing two or three hours per night because she's going to laundromat. That actually is a really smart decision for this person and you just were in this space of judgment presuming you know what's best and I think we can all as the work that we do in domestic violence intimate partner violence work or whatever capacity you're doing take a pause and fill the needs that people are telling you who are experts in their own lives what they need we would be in a much better place but I cut you off you were going to say something Ivy yeah, I mean, I was just going to sort of add to what Catherine was saying about how you know, we've been talking about like, these mission organizations and people coming in, but a lot of times, like, those folks who come in stick stick around, and they do listen, and they do start to understand that, oh, we need to do, you know, X, Y, and Z, buy a washer for somebody, or, you know, whatever it may be, help somebody get to a doctor's appointment. So they start to sort of enmesh themselves in this community and sort of understand, oh, we can stick around and we can sort of provide these other wraparound services that are really needed because we've listened to the people here and we know what they want and what they need. And I think if I think about the settlement schools, Pine Mountain Settlement School, Hyman Settlement School, two examples that sort of started in that era of people coming in and you know, trying to help and save and all of that stuff, the people, they are still there. They do still exist and they're still open and they still provide services for their communities, but they have changed and they have shifted over their hundred year history, whatever it may be, because they have become a member of this community. They've started to understand this is the stuff that we're hearing that people want from us. So we're going to provide that like a seed bank for people's gardens or, you know, preserving the land around the school or something. That's like what they have understood. So it's, you know, about that listening again, it sort of gets back to that, you know, listening to the people, listening to what they need, just what you were saying, you know, listening without that judgment about 
maybe this isn't something important, but maybe it is. And building that trust and that relationship, which you don't do, you know, in, you know, the first week that you enter into a community, you know, that takes a lot of time. And I don't know that it a hundred percent fits here, but I've mentioned Brene Brown in the past. Some people love her, some people don't, whatever, but she does a really cool thing on trust. I really like it because I think trust sometimes when you're working with folks can be a difficult thing to kind of go out. How do you build that? And what does that look like? Like, like me as a provider, how do I begin to to how do I begin to intentionally have trust? And she just has this really cool kind of acronym of it. But a lot of it is just showing up. It's listening. It's showing up. It's holding confidences, you know, as to that people feel safe and that you begin to know people on a on a daily level. You know, you begin to sort of connect. So it's not the person, like the people that are kind of the mission people that were sort of worried about just swooping in and here's $10,000 and this is what you need to do. But it's people that kind of on a daily know what's going on with your kids and know what's going on in your community and what's going on in your housing. And so they care. It's just a way of sort of showing that care. Yeah. I think we're a little bit kind of at the end of this. I don't know if there's some things that you sort of want to wrap up and have conversation about that maybe we didn't touch. I really do hope that you all come back at another time because I think this was really just getting folks, I think, situated to begin to have conversation as I hope programs and coalition on legislative levels and and looking at things that they can do to talk about violence against women and are bringing forth, again, all the voices in the Commonwealth. But I think this needed to be placed first. So again, I I hope that you all come back or advise or guide the coalition as they move forward. But I didn't know if there was any sort of parting pieces that you all had to say, or if you're feeling good. I thought this was really good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think this was great. And I think you're, you're thinking on the right in the right way about these issues. You know, like intimate partner violence is often seen of a, as like a women's issue, right? And then there's like, you know, black issues over here and there's mountain people issues over here. But the reality is that it's all, these are all our issues, you know, intimate partner violence, violence in general is an Appalachian issue because it exists in Appalachia and there are people dealing with this and there are people trying to um, get rid of these issues, right? right? So, so yeah, I just, I guess, applaud you and your providers in, in thinking about it in that complex way and thinking about how place can really impact a person's lived experiences, everyday lives, their relationships, and and yeah. Thank you. Are you good? I'm good. All right. That says it all. Good. I want to thank you all for tuning in. Again, my name is Diane Fleet, and you've been listening to KCADV's podcast series. I've been in the studio with Ivy Brashear, who's a PhD student at the University of Kentucky in Communications, and Dr. Catherine Engel, who's the director of Appalachian Center at the University of Kentucky. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Zero V podcast series, formerly known as KCADV. This podcast series discusses issues and concerns directly regarding the experience of intimate partner survivors. Follow us on social media and you can listen to the series where you currently listen to your podcast.